Welcome to the Subscription League, a podcast by Purchase League. Listen to what's working in subscription apps. In each episode, we invite leaders of the app industry who are mastering the subscription model for mobile apps. To learn more about subscriptions, head to subscriptionleague.com. Let's get started. Hey, Jeff, are you ready for another great episode? Yes, I'm super excited because today we're interviewing Lea Samrani. She's product lead at a time where she has worked for the last three years. And a big bet they made at a time was to tirelessly put the customer's needs first to grow. And it seems like the bet has paid off. So I want to learn more about their success. Awesome. So welcome, Lea, to the show. And before I get to ask you tons of questions, do you want to tell us more about you and Uptime? Uh, yeah, sure. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. My name is Leah. I've been in product for a decade now. Makes me so old. I've mostly worked for mission-driven companies, so of all sizes, but always with a strong mission. I work in the not-for-profit sector. I work within the dating industry and most recently a lot more in education. And for the last three years, I've been part of the Uptime team, which has been a fantastic experience. Uptime? Maybe you haven't heard of us yet. That's because we are a startup. <laughs> We're on a mission actually to inspire people everywhere to learn and to thrive in this very fast-changing world of ours. And the way we go about that is we select thousands of lessons from the best books, the best courses, the best documentary, and even the best podcasts. And we package them into five minutes visual stories. And we call that a knowledge hack. We've actually launched the application in January 2021. So we haven't even celebrated our second birthday yet. We've made a big impact already. The, and, and we've been recognized for our work, which is really, really amazing. The app was Apple Editor Choice. We were Google Play App of the Year 2021. Nice. And yeah, we even made the Fast Company list for the best app of 2021. So pretty cool. Great. So you mentioned that you do it for podcasts too. How do we get a little thing done for our podcast? Who do we talk they to? Talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> ah, great. I can put you in touch with the right people. <laughs> awesome. So you guys at Uptime did a lot of research to get right in the app. Can you tell us more about what that research entailed and how it made a difference? Very early on, we had a good idea of what our mission was and what problem we were trying to fix. But the big question was, how do we actually go about fixing it? And that's when research played a key role. So, you know, we had that hypothesis that so it's something we could relate to on a personal level, that spending too much time on social media, mindlessly scrolling, wasn't really great for you. It wasn't good for your mental health. It just wasn't good for a person in general. And we thought that learning something new instead, actually gaining knowledge, could be the answer. We were just starting. So, you know, no data to look at. You know, customers to get insights from, you know, to validate any kind of hypothesis in that way. And we still need the essential information to guide our decision-making process. So what we did is a very thorough research. We did an extensive analysis of the market. Mm -hmm. I mean, extensive. I think I've personally tested over 100 applications. Oh, nice. And other products out there as well, you know, like web everything that exists pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> we, we also ran a survey with that. I think it was something between 4,000 to 5,000 participants. Mm -hmm. oh. We ran diary study that went on over a few weeks, which were really looking at people's habits and how they were consuming any digital product, how they were learning or, or not learning, actually. And then we also did in-depth interviews to classify people's needs into personas. What we really wanted to know, actually, was how people were spending their time and how that was making them feel and how we could help with that. 
through this process, it actually became very clear that there was a need for a way to spend short amount of time throughout your day gaining knowledge. But it's actually very difficult to do so. It's, it's really not easy to do so. And we met people that were giving us examples of how they were hacking existing products that were not intended for learning. And they were making them work for them in that way. But if the details of how they would do that was just, it's just crazy. We basically realized that a lot of education products that exist out there were very formal. You know, it's, it's more on the long form side of things. And it's great. It's really good to have that. But it's not necessarily something that you can do in you know, five minutes in your downtime when you're on a commute or when you have a break at work or when you're cooking, anything like that. Some products as well have very poor usability. So we sort of found the better the content, the worse the usability in a way. And it was really strange because on the complete other end of that scale, you found a lot of products that are, you know, very engaging and very fun and have great usability. And this is usually like entertainment or social media or even the gaming industry. In that sphere, the product, there's an information overload on this platform, you know, and it's hard to get a sense of what can be trusted and what cannot be trusted. So there are really nothing in the middle, you know, there were nothing that actually had all that great usability and ease of use and ease of access and that was fun and, and great to use. Mm-hmm but has content that can be trustworthy and that has knowledge that is worth learning. So yeah, and we found that out through talking to people like extensively and it became very clear for us, you know, where we should be focusing and what what we should be doing and how we started. Nice. And how much time would you say it took to validate that hypothesis that you made for product with knowledge, but yet very appealing for a daily use? It took a couple of months for us to like really dig into that properly. What even made you think that you were succeeding and you were on the right path? Is it like oh, being we featured by Apple, the number, <laughs> a certain amount of downloads or? Uh, no, that comes later. You know, you, you don't get featured by Apple on your first day. <laughs> that comes later. No, at first it was all through user feedbacks. Our early adopter, we had a very close communication with them. We tried to, to build a, a mini community with them. With the first people, we were getting really positive feedback very early on. Then data came into place and then, you know, big iteration. And at the end, I mean, if you look where we started to where we are now, like the product is completely different. It's very, very different, but the mission is the same and the need we're fulfilling is the same as well as the one we established in the original research. I'm curious, kind of a follow-up question to uh, Jeff's. How long do you think it took until you get to the point where you're like, okay, now we got traction, we're on the right path. And, you know, before that, you're kind of like, well, we have that great idea, but we were, you know, getting feedback and turning left and right and adjusting. But I'm sure at some point you're like, okay, we're onto something. We're going in the right direction. That's a really good question. I don't think it's a time thing. For us, it, it was based on the inside because we were receiving incredibly positive feedback from users. It really got us thinking, you know, what we, we are doing something right. And we were also receiving requests for things like for features or for behavior in the app that we were planning on doing. Mm-hmm. So we really felt aligned with our audience and what yeah. they needed and what, you know, our, our thinking as well. But then, you know, you really know you're doing something well when Apple picks you up, when <laughs> you get really great retention, where yes. people reviewing us out there on like blogs and it's not people we're paying. It's just, it's just <laughs> you know, it's people that are using the product. I'm just like, you, I write about it. So it's awesome. a general multitude of things that comes together. Yeah. 
Last time we talked, you told us a key point in Uptime's culture was to test everything, do A-B testing every time there's a feature that comes out. Can you tell us about the challenges this can bring in a project? So when you just start, you don't really have enough user to test everything. You don't get the number to validate anything in, in a significant way. We didn't start testing from day one, but what we did was introduce the basics needed for testing. So we made sure that everything was tracked properly, for example. So from the very beginning, you know, we never actually launched a feature without adequate tracking in place. Then the second thing is we actually invested in tools that would democratize the access to data. So we made sure that data wasn't something that was siloed. And that got us to a place, you know, where we had enough users to really testing to, to start experimentation. It was very easy to do so because all the infrastructure was in place from day zero. Then we actually started with user testing before AB. So it's actually easier to start with user testing. You know, there's a lot of tool that you can use so that facilitate recruitment. You can also build functionality in your own product. So talk to your user directly. The big advantage is that you don't need big numbers to validate things that way. You can do it with five users. So that was the first step. And then once that methodology was widely accepted, we had that running with the team as basically as BAU and our numbers start to ramp up. We just added experimentation to it. So first you use a test, then you AB. What happened though is when you run experimentation on a new product, you have to think carefully about what is it you're testing. Where in the funnel uh, you're testing your feature or you change how many people are going to get to see it. You know, how easy is it to move the metric that you're actually testing against? Because you're new, you don't have that level of user yet that you can necessarily test uh, very low down the funnel and have results fast. And so it's something that I think we had in mind very early on that, you know, we don't really want to test to run for months and have no results and just never go anywhere. So deciding if something was worth testing or not is something that we really felt carefully in terms of how exposed to people it would be. And it also takes take a little longer to build something to test as well. So yep. actually at a time that wasn't really a problem because we didn't have any uh, legacy system and we built the process straight away from the beginning. So that went very swiftly. Mm-hmm. But I've actually, I've worked with a lot of companies where uh, that's not the case. When you're going to build a feature for A-B testing, sometimes it takes twice the time to build it. Usually it's because of the way the tech is set up or it's just not made for it. For those guys, experimentation has a significant cost on their organization. And it's not always worth it, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So some of the way to go around that was, you know, maybe just test on one device. You know, you always see, like, you often see at least that iOS is ahead of Android on for quite a few products that build that uh, separately. So, you know, maybe you just test on iOS and if it works, then you just extrapolate the results, release it on all platforms. That saves you some time, gives some visibility. Other case I've actually seen working with some companies that sometimes you have a feature that's decided at business level. It could be something that's essential for a company positioning or to support a marketing activity, for example. And in those cases, the tests are almost pointless because nobody cares about the results. The business will release that feature no matter what. So in those cases where you have to think about the cost of getting the data you may not use versus the possible cost of not having any visibility and not make an informed decision. Those are trade-offs as well that you have to consider. But I really believe that, you know, a company that has a decent level of user acquisition and that have a proper setup, like where we are with our time now, you should have testing as a default methodology and have exception when, you know, it's not needed. 
rather than the other way around. That's a great summary. In the subscription world, A-B testing the paywall is super important. Do you have any advice on that specific topic? Yes, uh, absolutely. You're right. You know, testing a paywall is very, very important. I work with startups that actually would say, you know, we don't have the resource to test this, so we're just going to copy what works from our competitor. And in a sense, those guys were right. You don't always have to reinvent the wheel, especially with paywall. Sometimes you can just get inspired and get best practice from other applications. But there's a big caveat here because works for one product doesn't necessarily work for another one. There's a lot of other factors to be taken into consideration, like your brand awareness, your pricing strategy, your audience, your localization. And I've actually seen that happen a few times where you know the same design or very similar design have a completely different impact on different products, which actually makes sense, right? Because otherwise, every single application out there would have the exact same paywall. And that's not the case. By focusing so much on what the competitors are doing, they sort of stop being innovative. They stop focusing on their own user behavior. And I don't think it really works. I think it's quite important that you actually test and invest the time in testing your paywalls and find what works for you, for your product and your audience. Like. One of the main mistakes I've seen with paywall testing is people trying way too many things at once as well. It's very difficult to get an accurate answer if you're changing your price, your intro offer, your design, your copy, and your paywall entry point all at once. Like Those are the kind of things that I really would not <laughs> recommend. You should split that into different tests and see you know, if you have enough user, you can even run all those tests at once. And if you don't have enough, you just do them one after the other, but they're individual tests. I've also seen people going like the other extreme with paywalls where people would actually lose the trust in their own decision making and they would start testing absolutely everything. So uh, to the point like, you know, one pixel change on design, that would actually be a test. (laughs) (laughs) So that's not great either because I mean, if it's not visible to the untrained eye, you maybe shouldn't test it. And It doesn't really justify the extra resource, the extra time. Mm-hmm. And also, it's kind of bad for your team because so those tests, probably they're going to be inconclusive. And then your team will lose the trust in experimentation and the value of experimentation. Mm. Yeah. So uh, you have to be careful as well. Yeah, and there's the impact, the design team and on the people making the decision as to yeah how much you want to take those decisions away from the team and what's the impact on the morale of the team too. Yeah. Uh, it drives developers crazy. I mean, when they do, they spend days uh, building a paywall, developing a paywall, and uh, it goes to trash after three weeks. <laughs> you can do that once, twice, three times. But in the end, it's like, okay, uh, can't you think a little bit before doing some tests, please? Uh, sure. Sounds like that happened to you. It, it never works. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so all those advice that you gave, do they change at all or do they vary based on the company, the size of the company, like early stage startup versus larger companies? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's completely different for different scales. I mean, when you're a large company, you know, you have millions of users. It's mm-hmm. so much easier. You can test. <laughs> yeah, but it's true. You can test things on such small subset of your user. You, you can run tests in a defined market. You can actually test on just 10% of your audience. You have more control. You have more option. You can run a test for a much longer you know, period of time and release it very incrementally as well. Whether I think in startup, there's a lot more pressure to have results. And also because you have less user, you have less resource, the impact is much bigger. So you have to be a lot smarter about how you test in a startup. 
but you can actually move faster too, which is, you know, it's great. An example of like, if you're testing a payroll, for example, as a, as a startup, you know, you, you, maybe you can't take as much risk as in a large company. So one of the things that I've seen, for example, a good approach is, you know, identify your top conversion point and then don't touch it. And then you run your test on your secondary conversion point or your lo- lower conversion point. And only once you validate them there, then you can test it again on your main conversion point because of, you know, the impact. Whether in a big company, you don't really need to do that. You just take 10%, you run it everywhere, you get results. So Yeah, the benefit of being a large company. Yeah. <laughs> when doing A-B testing and you're, you know, making a choice version A, version B, but there's always a goal behind it of moving a needle that you're trying to move, Was it whether it's getting more users or incrementing revenue. What? KPIs do you guys optimize for today and why? So it's very different for every specific test. Usually you have a set of KPI that you know are like your core metric and you just always monitor that whether they're in relation with the test or not. Usually that's something around you know your retention metric, your monetization on your North Store. So those are the ones that you you sort of either want to see move positively or not impacted at all. They don't normally move easily, those metrics, like they're quite high levels. So your test would rarely be a direct objective for that test. They're more of something that you look at, you know, as, as a security, a safety, sorry, safety metric. And if your test had any negative impact on those one, well, you would probably fail it no matter how well it's doing, you know, the actual test metric. Like, for example, let's say you're testing a new notification and that new notification has an amazing conversion open rate. But then you actually realize that retention drops. So, you know, must probably have a great open rate because people are then going in your app and unsubscribing. If your metric is open rate of notification, you'd be like, this is successful, this is great, let's release it. But if you also keep an eye on the higher level metric, which is more on your app as a whole, you would fail that test, right? Because you do not want retention to be impacted. But the best way to actually find out what metric you look at is just to set up your hypothesis from the beginning, you know, really decide how what success will look like before you start the test, before numbers start coming in, before you start thinking, wait a second, what does that mean? You should establish that before the test run and make sure you're willing to make some trade-off because in my experience, it's very rare that a test is black or white. You always see, you know, some metrics are doing well, some are doing less good, and there's always some sort of trade-off that needs to be made around what is the most important for you right now, what is the most important for your business, what's your North Star, that kind of thing. And speaking of uh, A-B testing and maybe A-B testing uh, payables, do you have any like fun story or A-B test that was successful or unsuccessful, unattended, uh, unexpected, yeah. sorry, unexpected, successful or unsuccessful payable? Because we hear these stories of people having a bug in a button, like three lines instead of two lines, and it uh, raises conversion while it was originally a bug. Did you encounter any of these uh, kind of situations with, uh, well, unexpected tests? So often. <laughs> really, like- that's why I'm saying it's very important to do your own tests and, you know, see what works for you because it's really surprising. Like I work with one client that they pretty much copy-pasted a payroll from one of the most crossing app in the market. Of course, you know, the copy is slightly different, the pricing strategy different, but the design of it, the structure, the strategy is the same. And, you know, we know the app they got it from is one of the top grossing apps. We know they tested the payroll. We know it's doing really well for them. Yeah. But actually with those guys, it was terrible. <laughs> it did really well. It really didn't work at all. He, he actually failed. And we weren't super clear on why it failed. But at the end, we sort of 
agreed that it was a question of brand awareness, that this app that they took it from has such a big brand awareness. They can afford to do things that a smaller brand cannot afford because they don't have the trust yet. So they needed more education before that paywall. They needed more copy in that paywall. They needed things that the other branches, yeah, didn't have to bother to do really. Like, and after seeing that, what happened? Did you start from the ground up? Uh, no, it was reverted. And then there's kind of dropped and moving to maybe we shouldn't focus on payroll right now, but actually focus on what's before it. So I know they're going to test that again in a couple of months. So stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that the larger brand maybe didn't have to educate the user as much as that potential client. Educating a user about the value of the app is always a, a tough proposition. How did you approach that at uptime and did you encounter any issues? Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult to educate a user on the value of your product, especially when you're brand new. There's no awareness. There's, you're asking a lot out of the person, right? It's a very competitive market. Why should someone choose to use your product and trust you rather than anyone else out there? There's a lot of way to go about that, but we... We've decided at a time to actually lead with the product first, let the product speak for itself. So the value comes from the full offering. So what we've done is actually launch with a model where as, as a new user, when you actually join a product, we do two things. First, we put as little barrier to entry as possible between you and the core value of the product. So you can get straight to the content and get to that aha moment where, you know, you can really get the benefits of it. And the second thing we do is that we lead with premium. So most applications on the market, they have a freemium model, right? You go there, there's some sort of limited feature, limited experience. If you pay or if you take on a trial, you can actually get the full experience. But you are asked for your card details before you actually know what you get. We decided to go the other way around. So we decided that, you know, here's a full product, full functionality, full content. You try it out and then you decide to commit because, you know, this is the right product for you. And so far, I mean, that's worked quite well for us. But obviously something that, you know, we continuously optimize and look at evolving. Great. Those were all the questions that we had for you today. If our listeners want to learn more about you and Uptime, where can they go? Uh, uptime.app. <laughs> and what about you? Where can they find you? Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn. It's my only active social media. Okay. I'm doing a cure. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. And, and also speaking at conferences because this is how we met. In <laughs> yes. Yeah. Mm. What's the next conference that you'll be talking at? actually in Berlin last week in a conference and I will be in London no remotely in June and then in London in September okay well right. maybe in September people can uh, see you yes <laughs> I will. thank you so much for all those great answers it was great having you on the show thanks Leo. thank you so much on behalf of the Purchasely team thank you for listening to the Subscription League podcast if you've enjoyed what you heard leave us a five-star review on iTunes or other audio platform to find out more about Purchasely and how we can improve your subscription business, visit Purchasely.com. Please hit subscribe in your podcast player and don't miss any future episodes. You can also listen to previous episodes at SubscriptionLeague.com. See you soon!